Well, good morning, everybody. It is baptism weekend here at Encounter, and we are pumped this morning. Just as a reminder, we have everything covered for you to make this your baptism weekend. So if it's like worried about a change of clothes, we've got shorts, t-shirts, sports bras for the ladies, everything that you need, we've got it covered. If you're worried that your family and friends aren't here to celebrate with you, we've got a photos team that's going to capture that moment. And I promise you, if they are followers of Jesus... They're not going to be mad at you for getting baptized this weekend, I promise. And if they're not yet followers of Jesus, they don't get it anyway. It's fine. There's no reason why today can't be your baptism weekend. Anytime during the message here, if you're like, hey, I think, I think Jesus is speaking to me. I got to go to the table in the back. That's fine. If you're embarrassed or worried what your friends think, just say, I got to use the restroom and go to the table in the back. And then actually use the restroom because you don't want to be a liar on your baptism weekend. All right. We are in part two of our series this morning called How to Be Happy. And so what we did is we kicked it off last week with a few different ways of how to be miserable. And that was exciting. So thank you for coming back. And, and one of the things that we said is that happiness is not found in like getting that other job or that better job. Happiness is not found in a pay boost. We know that because... Because we've had those things in the past and it led to a little bit of momentary like, oh, that feels good, but it didn't last. And so we said happiness is this elusive thing that's easy to get, but nearly impossible to keep. And so we're talking this morning about the kind of happiness that we can keep. And so we're going to learn this morning and we're going to see today what that, what that secret to happiness is. We're going to see what that, what that surprising, what that secret, what that shocking secret to happiness is. But before I tell you, before we jump into what that is, I want to show you or I want to demonstrate to you what, what stands in our way, what's blocking our view between us and that, that everlasting deep down kind of joy called happiness. And it's this thing right here on the screen behind me. It's a simple thing called selfishness. It's all about me. It's that selfishness that's standing in the way between happiness and me. It's that selfishness that says, hey, it's all about me. It's that selfishness that that just poisons the relationships that that we find ourselves in. I was reading one marriage counselor who said that that selfishness is usually the thing underneath all of the conflict in marriage. Selfishness is usually responsible for, I would say, even outside of marriage into all the relationships that we have with people. Selfishness is the thing that, that, that taints, that, that spoils, that poisons your relationships with, with maybe the people that you live with in your house or the people on your floor if you're like in the dorms. Selfishness poisons the relationships that, that you have with the people, the job site you're going tomorrow or the office that you're going to go into tomorrow or the classroom you're going to find yourself in tomorrow. Selfishness is that thing that just has a way of getting a hold and ruining everything. It's that selfishness that people act out of on you and you're just like the collateral damage of it. When somebody puts you down to like build themselves up, it's not about you or what you did or didn't do at all. It's about them and their need to like like, like puff up in front of other people. It's that selfishness. It's that selfishness of why you've been ghosted or why you've been ignored. It's the selfishness of the person who did that. It's not about you or whether or not you have inherent value or worth or not. Nothing about you at all. It's the selfishness of the person who did that to you. It's all about their selfishness. Again, it's 
toxic. I hope that you're sensing that. And listen, this thing is so, it's so invasive and it's so poisonous and it's so, it's so present all around us. It's even come into my own life, my own marriage. You guys, Kristen, my wife is such a selfish person. I'm just, a joke is easier to say when she's not in the room right now. Both worship experiences, huh? Okay. Um, no, it's, it's me, like, because we're both Enneagram threes, right? The achievers. So, like, we're going to just schedule ourselves to death and then be happy and proud that we were the first ones to, like, cross that particular finish line, right? That's us. And so our, our Google calendars synced with each other are, like, color-coded, and it's, like, Roy G. Biv, the full rainbow, like, right there. And so I know she's out of town, and I'll schedule something, like, Friday afternoon, and she's going, you you scheduled something. And I'm like, I did. I'm out of town. You know, I'm out of town. How are the kids going to get picked up from school? And I'll just deadpan right at her. And I'll just be like, Uber. And she's like, you, you can't put her first grader in an Uber, right? It's a, no, I know that. But the truth is, the truth is, I wasn't thinking about my kids getting home from school at all. I wasn't thinking about my, about my wife's schedule or any. I was only thinking about myself. It's that selfishness. Listen, like I said, it's toxic to bring into any kind of relationship. It's toxic to bring into, and it'll make you critical of any organization you ever find yourself a part of, church, school, employer, politics, whatever it is. It's this selfishness all about me that is just ugly, ugly, ugly. And there's going to be a key to it because we see it all around us. It's so natural. It's like survival of the fittest, all about me, looking after me. But God actually embedded into creation another way, another, another pattern to live by. And what we're going to see this morning from looking at our Bible passage, what we're going to see this morning is that, is that there is a way that's going like to just be laid out in front of us that we could live our lives patterned around that way instead of the way this thing of selfishness. And what we're going to see this morning is that this happiness that comes along with it, listen, we're all, everybody everywhere is chasing after it. And in fact, some people are going to find it, but far fewer people are actually going to implement it, to do it. So let's check it out. Let's check out this secret to happiness from Philippians chapter 2. This series, How to Be Happy, is coming right out of the biblical book of Philippians. If you'd like to find it, there's Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. It's going to be on the screen here behind me. We are a phone-friendly church, so you can follow along on the Bible app um, as well. And uh, Philippians chapter 2 is four installments in the series, four chapters of Philippians. We're just kind of marching our way through here. It starts off, Paul now is writing to the church in Philippi, and he says this. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking, oh, oh, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Now, there's like a part of me a cynical part of me, right, that says, oh, Paul clearly had no idea who he's writing to. I mean, Paul was not writing to the, to the selfie generation. He had no idea how self-absorbed that, that people could become someday and about how we all are on this, like, like, like track or this ladder to, like, look better in front of other people. But what I'm struck with is Paul knew exactly who he was writing to. Is that he's writing to this church called Philippi. It's this outpost Roman former military colony now turned into a bustling city. And Paul's writing to these 
people. And he's, he's writing to this, one of the most stratified, one, one of the most like, rigid class structure system in the history of Western civilization. So some of this content is going to come from the, uh, the New Testament historian, uh, Joe Hellerman. He wrote extensively about this and some of the other historians as well. One, hi- one historian wrote about the Romans, this, this era that was written about here, and said, listen, to be Roman is to be seen. They had, a, they had an honor and shame-based culture. So everything was about how many chips, how many honors could you get conferred onto yourself and then shame and not having them ever taken away. And so the best thing in the world was to be seen doing something worthy of more honor. The worst thing you could ever imagine was to bring shame either on yourself or your family. And so, so uh, the Cicero, it's a Roman philosopher, he wrote about this honor and shame thing and just the power and the allure of honor. He said that we're born, and it's a first century AD philosopher, he's writing, he said, we are born with this innate hunger and thirst for honor. And when we get a glimpse of its radiance, we will do whatever it takes in order to keep it, sacrificing anything that it requires to maintain it. That's that power of the honor and shame in their culture. And it was all, it was all around them. And so you just imagine like, like what Paul is speaking into, this culture that was all about shuffling, that was all about climbing the ladder, this culture that was all about, all about just achieving for myself, all about the power that I could gain for myself, all about winning whatever it is for myself. And he's writing into this. He's writing into a culture, again, Hellerman, that's structured so much where everybody knows and is identified by what they wear immediately into the structure where they find themselves. And so just a heads up on what this could look like at the very bottom rung. First of all, 98% of the people were considered non-elite. At the very bottom of the rung, the majority of them were just slaves, Right? And even among the slave class, very few rights, there was still like this shuffling and this ladder among the slaves. Who you were a slave for? Who owned you? There was also like where you lived or the proximity to Rome or outside of it or the kind of, of work that you did. I mean, it was all relevant in the shuffling around. And then just above that was this, was this other class called freedmen, which was distinct from the slave class just because at least nobody, nobody owned them. The slave class, they didn't, they didn't even have a right to their lives, but the freedmen at, at least had, had that. And, and, they, and they got the distinction of getting to show everybody that they are part of the freedmen class by wearing a funny hat. It was like this Robin Hood looking cone felt kind of thing that was like tied around in the back and they would just wear it around just to signify everybody around that I may be low on the social rung, but I'm at least not at the bottom. And then one step up from that, still not necessarily an elite class, was the citizens. And the citizens, they got to wear togas and they got special rights and privilege. By the way, Halloween is coming up. If you're thinking of a costume and you're cheap and not creative, consider a bedsheet, a toga. Fairies, you just wrap it around. And it's difficult to kind of like figure that whole thing out on purpose because it's cumbersome to wear a toga. That's why only Roman citizens got to wear togas. It was a sign that they, that they were someone special. They had special rights and privileges. There was, was uh, citizenship was either an honor that was conferred on them or they won it or maybe they bought it somehow. They did something to earn it, to achieve it. 
And they got it for themselves and then they kept it and they could pass it away, pass it down to the next generation. And they got to wear togas as a result of it. And you're like, togas are super inconvenient to wear around. That's the point. So are ties and suits. That's how these things tend to work. It's cumbersome to wear and to do, but at least it was a sign that they were like a cut above the others. And then we get into that 2%. Then we get into the, the elite class. This class, the first one, the bottom one there was called the equestrian class. And it's a, it's a fun one because if you grew up in a rural high school setting like I did, you're like, oh, I know the equestrians. They're like the horse people, right? Like, like barrel racing and, uh, and, and like showing and horse dancing. Like that's an Olympic sport. I don't know how, but like that's an Olympic sport. I'm going to get an email about that. That's okay. But but the, the equestrian class wasn't necessarily just people who did sports with horses. No, in this case, it meant something specific. It was horse-related, but it was the people who were, who were wealthy enough to be able to afford a horse, and if the city or if the nation called on you, you were in a place where you could bring that horse or horses into battle on behalf of your city or your nation, your empire. And so it was just like, I am so extravagantly wealthy that I can afford to bring my horses into battle on behalf of somebody else to defend the people, Whew, equestrians. And equestrians got to wear a special gold ring as a result of the class that they were a part of. That's why in the book of James in the Bible, James is writing to the church and he's like, hey, hey, don't, don't fall all over yourself just because someone comes into your gathering wearing a gold ring. And here today we're like, why would you fall over somebody who's like wearing a gold ring? Like most people have a gold ring somewhere that they could wear. No, 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 not just about the gold ring. It was a part of the class it belonged to. They were extraordinarily wealthy. They were in this elite class. Listen, don't fall all over yourself around them. It's, it's not pretty. It's ugly. Don't do that. And then just above that was the senatorial class. This was like the ruling class. These are the people who got to make the rules. They wore togas, of course, because they were citizens, but they also got to wear a purple stripe that went through the whole thing just to signify they make and enforce the rules. And then, of course, on the very, very top, just one guy, Caesar, the emperor, the guy over, and he got, all, he got to wear all kinds of fun stuff and had all kinds of rights and privileges. But listen, why all of this is important is because where Paul is going in the next thing is he's going to highlight some of the rights that some people had versus others. And he highlights the fact that sometimes punishments coordinated with the rights that people either had or didn't have. And so, for example, for example, freedmen, as I mentioned earlier, just couldn't be put to, get, put to death for no reason. And they had to be shown of having some capital crime. In the city of Philippi, we learned last week, Paul was arrested and he was actually flogged. He was whipped. And then all kinds of confusion broke out because after the fact he revealed he was in fact a Roman citizen. <gasps> Gasp! No, you have to know Roman citizens were not allowed to be flogged. And so they were like, what do we do now? Are we going to get in huge trouble? Who asked him if he was a citizen? Nobody asked. Oh my goodness, like we're, everything's going to come crashing down on us. We broke the rules, right? Because the punishment fit, not the crime, the punishment fit the class. And there was one 
punishment that was saved for the worst of the worst. There was one punishment that was considered more humiliating than any other kind of punishment. Citizens were not supposed to undergo this particular kind of punishment, even freedmen. This was, and there was a direct quote that's used for it, crucifixion, death on a cross, was a slave's punishment reserved for only the worst offenders around because of how humiliating and downgrading on that ladder it was. And Paul goes, now we're talking. And he's speaking into this thing. And he is about to highlight something that just goes, just goes absolutely counter everything that we think that the world should be structured as. And he goes, listen, verse five, the next verse in Philippians two, in your relationship with one another, he says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Have that mindset as as Christ Jesus. Yeah, you know, the guy who died on a cross. Like have that same mindset, mindset as that guy. He fills it out, verse 6, who, now if you're looking at this like, like on your phone, you'll see like it's, it's brought in and then it's like organized as a song or maybe a poem. They probably set it to music, whatever they could to learn it so they could all say it in church together because they didn't have projectors back then, right? And they all would, would recite or sing together this, verse 6, who, and he's talking about Jesus, being in the very nature God, like he's on top, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Everybody else would leverage whatever they could to bring it up a couple rungs on the ladder. Not Jesus. He doesn't leverage his status as God, but instead doesn't use it to his own advantage. But rather, verse 7, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant. Greek word there is slave. Being made in human likeness. You can just hear him like crash through the like glass floors, right? Down and down he goes. Verse eight, and being found in appearance as a man, he, two concepts here, he humbled himself and become obedient to death, even death on a cross, exclamation point. And Paul's like painting this picture amidst a sea of people in Rome and the city of Philippi. And also, in the room here today, where we try to climb and climb and climb our way up this particular ladder. And he's painting this picture of God, who by definition is on the very top, infinitely higher even than Caesar the emperor. And he's painting this picture of Jesus Christ, like crashing down, becoming human. So at least he's at the level of Caesar. And then crashing down, crashing down from Caesar to senator to equestrian to citizen to freedman to slave. And if that wasn't bad enough, he says, oh, it doesn't end there because there's more floors to get through yet. Just when you think you're in the basement, he drops down another layer until he hits the rock bottom cold stone floor of the grave and says he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's God. That's the one we sing about. That's the one we worship. He humbled himself and he became obedient. Two ideas, two concepts that were just detestable to the Roman people then. And I suspect 
just as detestable to us today. Because nobody wants to be the person who gets brought down or wrong. That's painful. Every time. Every time it's painful. One of the uh, philosophers turned senators of the time, Pliny the Younger, I believe, wrote about that humbling process when you crash through the floor to a level below. And he says, it is more uglifying, that's how it's translated, it's more uglifying to have lost honor than to have never achieved it in the first place. And here Jesus loses and is stripped voluntarily every single honor he has until he falls down to obedience to death, even death on a cross. Listen, it's painful. It's so hard. But it's this thing that we want to talk about this morning. It's that process all the way down to that grave, as far down as life is going to bring you, as God is going to bring you. Because if, if I could just make an observation that I've noticed over the years, I've just noticed, not always, but oftentimes, that there is this inverse opposite connection between public increase, how people perceive you, uh, success at work, family, finances, whatever it is. There's an inverse relationship between public increase and spiritual decrease. So that is often, not always, but often the case that we observe that the more somebody experiences this, this public increase, it's almost like the, the, the private sort of spiritual level and growth of that person is decimated and starts to like pull back. But then the uh, church, the, the beautiful thing, the opposite though, the opposite is also true. I've noticed this time and time again. I've noticed that there's like this, this public decrease that seems to be connected with like this spiritual increase. And it's painful. Listen to me. Like some of you have known this. Some of you have lived this. This public decrease that you felt, right? Whether again, it's work or family, relationships, substance abuse, whatever it is. This public losing face, public deface. And I've sat with you and cried with you across the table, in the coffee shop, in your living rooms. And I've sat with you and you tell this story of like, listen, I thought I was at least up here. And then it was like, I crashed through and I thought, okay, that was bad. We can get through this. And there was like another layer and another layer and another layer. And when I didn't think I had anything else, yet I could possibly lose, I lost that too. And then when I hit that cold, stony ground, what felt like death, God met me. Like he showed up and started working in my life. And this is the wild thing, church. And this is what I hope if you experience this, this decrease, I hope you get to see this increase elsewhere. I hope you get to see this. I sit with people, sit with many of you in that place. And what you have told me is you look at that decrease and the increase that came as a result and you say, you know, if that's what it took, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Whoa. 
incredible, incredible power. I guess what I'm trying to say is that God, God can do so much more with your surrender. He'll take you through this whether you want to or not, but he can, he can do more through your surrender than he can through your control. Because when we crash through the floor and then we rally around, we try to hold it tighter. It's like that, that, it's like that the Play-Doh that's just like squeezing through your fingers. I'm like, no, no, I'm not gonna drop down another rung and it like squeezes out and we try to like fit it back in. And God is saying, listen, just let me take you where I'm taking you. There's something good on the other side. Trust me, I got this. And the people who have been through that and have finally found surrender look back and they say, oh, It doesn't make any sense to the world, but it's good. And I wouldn't have it any other way. But the song's not done yet. There's another verse to the song that Paul is quoting. It ends the previous verse with even death on a cross. And then there's these two words that if you take nothing out of this morning, I hope it's these two words. Starting off verse nine, it says, therefore God, after Jesus is left in the cold stony grave of death, Verse 9, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You get this sense, don't you, that Jesus Jesus, being at the top, being God, had to crash through all of these floors until he got to the stony, cold ground of the grave. And then after that, God raised him up. And the way that it's written and the beauty and the power that's encapsulated in those words, it's like God raises him up. And by the end, you're like, you know what? I didn't think it was possible, but it seems somehow like God, listen, God somehow got more glory out of having crash through and hit rock bottom than he ever did if he didn't go through that process in the first place. And it's like Paul's saying to, to them and he's saying to you today and he's going, yes, that's exactly it. That's what that process is all about. Because if you don't go through that crashing down, that humbling, obedient process down, you never get to experience the therefore God on the other side. And so some of you here today are in a place and you're going, it's just floor after floor. I'm crashing through. I don't even know when this thing is going to stop. And I am here to tell you that a therefore God is coming. That he's taking you through this for a reason and that there's more glory on that far side than if you never got to go through this in the first place. You're there for God is still on its way. This is embedded throughout the whole story. And it's beautiful once you start reading the Bible as having a bunch of authors compiled in all these different books from all across the world but over thousands of years, but really there's one author behind it all inspiring the whole thing. God himself is the author. You start to pull out these trends 
and these themes throughout it. And you start to see this like repeated and repeated. You start to see all the way back, this theme in the book of Genesis. You start to see this guy Joseph show up to his brothers, to his 10 older brothers. And he had to be the most unlikable kid brother in the history of kid brothers. He goes up to his brothers, hard at work in the field of which he was not. He goes up to his brothers and he's like, guys, I had the craziest dream. You are all like bundles of wheat, okay? And you bowed down to me. Have a good day in the field, guys. Not likable. Not likable at all. And then he comes up a little while later and he goes, I had another dream. Great. Yeah, you guys, you know, you, you're far better than, than bales of, of wheat. Don't worry, you are stars in the sky. And they're like, okay, here I'm out. And mom and dad were there too. And everybody bowed down to me. And you're like, we got to do something about this kid, right? And they did. They did. They threw him. He thought, Joseph thought he got humbled in the book of Genesis. You should read the Bible sometime. It's fascinating. Joseph thought he got humbled when they threw him in a, in a dried up well. And then he thought he really got humbled when they, some slave traders uh, picked him up, bought him, and brought him to Egypt. And then he really thought, okay, this is rock bottom when he ends up falsely accused and imprisoned in Egypt. And then he really hit the stone cold rock bottom of the grave, death itself, when he's forgotten about in an Egyptian jail. And at that rock bottom, therefore, God. Therefore, God started raising him up. Therefore, God brought him up. Therefore, God promoted and promoted and promoted until he was in charge of all of Egypt. Therefore, God gave him the vision to see that a famine is up ahead, but we can save food now and literally save the world. Therefore, God showed up for Joseph. Therefore, God shows up for you too. But there's a humbling that might take place beforehand. God will show up. You just might be in the humbling obedience part of it, but God will show up. I met a guy earlier this week on Thursday, and his story just blew my mind. I knew I had to share it with you. His name's uh, Oren, Oren Woodward. You can Google him later if you want. Um, New York Times bestseller. He's got millions of books sold. And I'm, I'm talking to this guy and uh, he's sharing his story. And he's like, his story begins, he's, a, he's an engineer uh, for uh, General Motors company and he's just fantastic at it. He's going places. He was the youngest vice president in his buildings over a hundred year history. Promoted and promoted on end, going places. He's the kind of guy that likes to get his, uh, his hands dirty, roll up his sleeves, even though he's the boss's boss. And he's taking these uh, alerts, 911 calls in the middle of the night. So 2 a.m., he gets one of these. He's heading back into the plant, find out what's wrong. Because his job is his life, and everybody looks up to him, and he has got it together. But he's sharing his story, and he's going, you know why at 2 a.m. I could take the 911 alert call? and head back into the plant? Why I could leave my family at home? It's because my family, my wife who was pregnant with their third child and my two kids already, my family wasn't at home. They hadn't been home in months. I could take those calls at 2 a.m. because I wasn't leaving anything behind. My wife and my kids were at her mom's house where they've been living. 
He goes, people looked at me and said, you are a self-made man. And I said, no, no, no. I am a self-made mess. And I thought I was on the verge of just losing the most important thing to me at the time. And so we just decided to go to church. So that's what she wanted. So we looked one up and went for the first time. And he said, I talked to somebody there and they referred me over to a counselor. Counselor had some words for us. I don't even know why my wife said yes. We were beyond hope. But for therefore God. That humiliation was intense. But therefore God raised him up. And he looks back everything he lost along the way and the humiliation that he experienced. And he goes, you know what? I wouldn't do anything different. Church, you're there for God is on its way.